1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Dr. Nicole Byers. She is the host of the Bold Life podcast. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, specializing in neuropsychology. And you guessed it, in this conversation, we're going to talk all about the brain and how that relates to productivity. We're going to talk about how neuroscience and psychology in her background led her to the areas of productivity and the brain, how the brain works, why your brain makes you procrastinate, how to spot the four signs of procrastination and how your brain learns negative mental habits like perfectionism and people-pleasing and self-doubt, and then how to overcome those things by giving your brain more and or better things to spend its time on. We even talk about sleep and the brain. So just like Nicole does with her clients and students, she is going to walk us through and teach us more about the brain and how it connects to productivity. It's fascinating. It's fun. You're going to love it. So I'm just going to get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Nicole Byers. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Dr. Nicole Byers. Nicole, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Very excited to talk with you because you've got a great podcast, and it's very much in the vein of what this podcast does, and it's called The Bold Life Podcast, and what's interesting is you're coming at it from a different angle. You've got a PhD in clinical psychology and then a specialty in neuropsychology, so you're bringing in all that awesome neuroscience-based Approach and perspective and strategies to productivity that I just can't do. I I can bring my brain. My brain is different and you have brain training on top of that. So I'm very excited to talk with you today. Awesome. So speaking of that, maybe you can give a little bit of a brush up on, you know, what your perspective is on your podcast, you know, the types of topics you cover a little bit more on your background just to set some context.
0: Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned already, I went to school and studied clinical psychology with a specialty in neuroscience, which basically means I'm a psychologist who studies brain health. So I went to school for a really long time and finally graduated. And then I spent my first five years or so working on a hospital neuroscience team where I was working primarily with folks who'd had injuries or illnesses that had impacted their brain health, like strokes or dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, helping them and their family cope when they were struggling with things like memory or concentration. And what I found interesting while I was doing this work was, you know, about half of my patients were what I expected, folks who'd had an injury or illness to their brain. And the other half of my patients had me a little bit Stumped. I was seeing a lot of, you know, high functioning women and men who would come and they would sit in my office and they'd say, you know, I just can't remember anything. I left my phone in my fridge today. I went to work with my shirt on backwards. I'm stumbling over my words all the time. But from a biological perspective, they were really healthy. Their brains and their bodies were in great shape. And that's really actually what got me interested in looking at productivity in more detail because what these folks were struggling with was Burnout. And so I started approaching productivity as a way to really prevent and manage burnout, especially for really high achieving type A overachievers, a little bit like myself, who, you know, I wanted to help prevent get to that point where they're really struggling day to day. And so that's the focus of my podcast as well is looking at productivity kind of from a more broad perspective, looking at the neuroscience behind productivity, like you said, but also some of the psychology and those mental habits that we've learned throughout. Our lives that can really get in our way when it comes to reaching our goals and having a full and balanced life, like perfectionism and people pleasing and procrastination.
1: Yes. And those are all topics that we've touched on in varying degrees on this show. You know, I'm very curious. You've mentioned procrastination. You've mentioned a couple other things. I'm curious what areas of productivity have you found? That your neuroscience and psychology background points you towards the most? What are the things that, you know, are the red flags or the the things that are the easiest to spot? I'm sure it applies broader than that, but what are some of the big tent poles, in other words?
0: Yeah, a great question. A couple of them. One is multitasking. I find this comes up a lot. I see folks, especially in my clinical practice, and they come in and they're like, Oh, I used to be really great at multitasking. I used to be able to juggle a million things at once. And, you know, actually from a brain perspective, our brains can't really multitask like that. So I spend a lot of time in my work and on the podcast talking about the problems with multitasking and why multitasking is really something we should avoid and not just multitasking with, you know, trying to answer emails while you're listening to a meeting or, you know, doing a bunch of things at once. But a lot of the mental multitasking that we do, things like, you know, trying to keep track of our to do lists in our head, keeping track of all the appointments we need to get to thinking about something I need to do later today while I'm trying to focus on this podcast, for example, and really, you know, helping folks understand that this drive to be excellent multitaskers isn't really a great productivity strategy for our brain
1: as you were saying that, holding our to-do list in our brain is one of those things that as soon as you said it, I said, oh, David Allen, that your brain is, is for having ideas, not for holding them. How have you found that applies to this subject of your brain?
0: Yes, that is a great quote there. I absolutely agree. And I think that you know, for a variety of reasons, we forget that we think that we should just be able to keep track of all of this stuff in our brains, but we live in a very distracting world where there is a lot to manage at one time. And when we're trying to hold all that information in our brain, it's pulling brain resources. So if my brain is trying to focus on, you know, the 10 things I need to pick up at the grocery store, for example, it has less resources to focus on things like making sure I don't forget my wallet at home or remembering where I parked my car for example. And we end up getting into this deficit model where our brains are using up resources in one area to stay focused and stay multitasking. And then we're losing resources in another area. And that can really lead to a lot of frustration and mistakes, which are even more frustrating day to day.
1: And I've found that using external tools, like for example, you just said parking the car. And I just got back a few weeks ago from a podcast conference. And when I parked the car at the garage, I didn't think to myself, oh, I'm going to hold that thought in my head for the next week till I get back to pick this car up, I took my phone out and used a supplemental device and took a picture so I knew exactly where, I I mean, it was like blue five or something along those lines. But to be able to know, okay, now, and in fact, I think this actually goes back to one of the things that you talk about sleep. We're going to talk about sleep later, but it's almost like the shelf idea in a certain way that I know you refer to.
0: Yeah, external strategies are fantastic. They just make life easier for our brain, right? Why have to put resources towards remembering where you park your car when you can take a picture? You know, there's some interesting research going on in the way that technology is kind of changing how our brains are functioning. For example, you know, we all, everyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s makes jokes about how we just had to know all this information because you couldn't Google anything, right? And now we can Google and come up with all these answers. And so we don't need to store all that information in our brains anymore. But as a result, those creative, those problem-solving parts of our brain are being able to take on a greater role and have more freedom to do that type of creative thinking which I think is, you know, if nothing else, one benefit of technology.
1: Yeah, we recently talked with Tiago Forte and his book, Building a Second Brain, and this goes right in tandem with this conversation in terms of having an exterior to yourself and to your brain system to capture and then work with. There's four stages. I'm not going to list them all. Go listen to that episode. (laughs) I'll link it up in the show notes. That externalizes things, thoughts, feelings, ideas, et cetera, to one, acknowledge them, To release them from your brain and offload your mental RAM, which is something I talk about a lot. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that topic. And then to be able to actually do something with those ideas and or connect them with other ideas that are already exterior and in that trusted system.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess it comes back to too, keeping in mind just how many brain resources we have at one time to access, right? And so if we are wanting to problem solve or think critically about something or analyze something, whether it's a work problem or you know an internal thought that we're struggling with, when we're trying to juggle all of that in our brain, yeah, it's pulling that ram, right? It's pulling all of those resources from our brain, making it harder to do. And so if we can use strategies like writing things down, not only does it get out of your head like you said, but it allows our brains to think about things in a more critical way because sometimes when our thoughts just get going, they go almost without us being aware of them, right? And it can be really hard to catch those thoughts and analyze them and think critically about them. And so writing things down, you know, using pen and paper is a really great externalizing strategy there too.
1: Do you have any guidance in terms of how often of an interval people should be doing that, whether it's assessing their to-do list, whatever form that takes, or journaling some sort of external releasing of thoughts, feelings, etc.
0: Yeah, it's a great daily habit to get into, for sure. There's definitely some research that you know, having a daily gratitude practice, for example, you write down things that you're grateful for or positive things that are going on in your life. It's a really great overall strategy for our mental health. But I'd also say whenever you're starting to feel overwhelmed, because that feeling of overwhelm is a good signal that our brains are getting pushed to their limits, right? If I'm starting to feel really tense about something, whether it's at work or with my family, if I'm noticing that my stomach's in knots more than it used to. If I feel like my thoughts are racing out of their control, those are all probably signs that your brain needs a bit of a break. And using some of that journaling, being able to get that information out of your brain, being able to take a step back from what's going on is a great time to do that.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier multitasking and even mental multitasking and how our brains aren't meant to do that as Mm -hmm. kind of one of the tent poles, Are there any other, I know we've mentioned procrastination, and I want to go there, and I want to touch on sleep. Are there any other tent poles that neuroscience really, you feel like, really has not the answer, but a better approach to productivity?
0: Yeah, I think one thing that, you know, we can take from some of the cognitive neuroscience research is, is also how long we can actually maintain our focus and work. And it can be really tempting, especially in our modern world where, you know, productivity is put on this pedestal and we feel like we need to be productive and we need to work and we need to do stuff all the time. But realistically, our brains also have limits for just how long they can stay focused. So about 60 to 90 minutes. And so if you're sitting at your desk working for longer than an hour, your productivity, your efficiency, your concentration, are all going to start going down. And we, we tend to feel in these situations that, oh, if I just keep working harder, if I just work through lunch, if I just stay up all night, I'm going to get more done. But the research says, no, this isn't true. It makes us overall less efficient. We get less done. So we're not even being more productive by working longer. And it also leads to some long-term consequences in terms of our health, our well-being, our stress, our sleep. All of these things can be impacted when we're not taking those regular breaks.
1: Definitely. And, and that goes right on into, I remembered what the other one was and you had mentioned it. It was the word overwhelm and kind of goes hand in hand with the term burnout. How do we get ahead of that? What are the signs of burnout and or overwhelm, especially when it comes to our mind and productivity?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And so, you know, the signs can be a little bit different for everyone. Some common signs I see in terms of our thinking abilities are we start to stumble more over our words. If you are, you know, in a meeting and you can't quite find that word and it feels like it's just on the tip of your tongue and that starts to happen more and more often, that can be a sign that your brain is getting to that point of burnout. Memory, we talked about a little bit already, but if you're more forgetful, if you keep putting your phone down and you can't remember where it is, or you feel like you keep dropping the ball and and missing things that you should be remembering, that might be another sign. And sometimes we feel that, that burnout or that overwhelm physically in our bodies first. Tension is a really common sign that our brains are getting to their limit. Our brains and our bodies are very connected and often our bodies will feel that overwhelm before our brains are even aware that we're getting to that point. Especially in our modern world where we have this tendency to push through and continue to work, we ignore some of those early signs. And so our bodies can kind of throw up that white flag and say, hello, pay attention. Things are not going well. So tension, if your shoulders are in knots and they're starting to creep up to your ears, if you're getting headaches more often than normal, if your jaw is super tight, if you're starting to notice that your stomach is not doing great things, your digestion is all off. If you're exhausted, if you sleep for eight hours, and you wake up and you're still like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to get through my day. All of these can be some of those early signs that your brain is getting to that point of burnout and overwhelm.
1: So one of the things that is right on my mind today as I record this, because I only got just shy of about five hours of sleep last night, which was not optimal. That is suboptimal for me. I usually get seven to seven and a half and try really hard to get quality sleep, not just quantity of sleep. I want to touch on the topic of sleep here, especially because it ties right into this. I can remember that in my freshman year of college, there was one point in time I was having a conversation with somebody and I forgot my girlfriend at the time's name. I couldn't for the life of me. I was like, oh, no, why can't I? And it was like it was a bad sign because I was overwhelmed. I was feeling burnt out. But on top of all of that, what was contributing to that overwhelm, that burnout, was I was not only getting lack of sleep time-wise, but lack of quality sleep because of my roommate. I will place the blame squarely on that. So, uh, but yeah, so sleep, obviously we know a lot about that, but how does that tie in with the brain? And this is where I want to kind of bring in the, um, you've done a whole episode on this in terms of, for example, my problem last night is my brain just wouldn't shut off. So I know you have like three steps to turn your brain off and get better sleep.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just a couple comments on on sleep in general. Yeah, you're right. Seven to nine hours is kind of what we recommend for sleep, and that's being in bed asleep, not laying in bed staring at your ceiling, thinking about everything you need to get done right? That's good quality sleep. And absolutely, sleep can really impact our brain functioning, our body health. Lack of sleep is associated with increased risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, weight gain, anxiety, depression. From a cognitive perspective, sleep is when our memories consolidate. So while you're sleeping, all of those new memories you've made during the day are consolidating or becoming stronger and getting put into long-term storage. So if we're not getting enough sleep, it makes sense that we're starting to notice memory problems or you can't come up Your girlfriend's name, or you can't quite remember what you did yesterday, your body's not feeling the greatest. I honestly, I think if I had to go back and someone told me I had to study something else in school out of the neuroscience, I would study sleep because I think it is that important to our overall health. So that's my up on a pedestal about sleep for a minute there. But in terms of what can we do? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of strategies are we really want our brains to know that our beds are for sleeping. And this is, I think, particularly problematic in our modern world where we have so many devices, right? Our phones are right next to us in bed, our laptops, we sit on our laptops and answer a few emails before we go to sleep. But that's really what that's training our brains is that bed is where I work. My bed is where I check my email. My bed is where I scroll social media. And our brains are fantastic learning machines. So we don't want to teach them the wrong thing. We want our beds to be where we sleep. And so making sure that you're not sitting in bed, checking emails. If you need to do that, make sure you do it somewhere else. If you're lying in bed and you can't fall asleep, I always recommend if you're laying there for more than about 20 minutes, get up, go to another room, do something else for a little bit until you become sleepy, again, because that's you know how we want to train our brains that I'm not going to lay here in bed and stare at my roof all night. I'm only going to lay here when I'm going to fall asleep. So that's definitely an important step.
1: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. Slash to do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, what about the non work device related stuff that's, say, fun, like checking Twitter for fun or people have iPads? We're reading in bed. Even non device things like a book. Should we be doing that? What's the word there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, good question. So I'd say anything electronic is a no-go. You know, there's lots of research on the light that the, our electronic devices emit is really interferes with our sleep quality. So if you have, you know, an e-reader or a tablet or whatever, yeah, probably don't read that in bed. Even if it is something that's meant to relax you, read it somewhere else. Give your brain a little bit of a break as well from those devices for, you know, half an hour, an hour or so before you go to bed. I personally do read, like read books in bed. If I had trouble sleeping though, I would stop doing that. So reading helps me fall asleep, but it could be that I eventually train my brain that my bed is for reading. And I certainly, I'm sure anyone who reads can attest to this. I've had those nights where I've stayed up way too late just because I wanted to see how the book ends, right? But if you're noticing that you're reading in bed and you're not falling asleep, you're not falling asleep within that you know 20 to 30 minute mark, maybe try reading somewhere else in a comfy chair, in a different room, and then going to bed when you feel sleepy.
1: Okay, good, because I've gone kind of both ways. I'm definitely lean towards trying not to use, although I do use music and have since I've been like in junior high, I do kind of listen to music in headphones a little bit that's a habitual thing at this point, and I'm not going to give it up. Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> reading has kind of been I've definitely been on the no tech side of things when it comes to the bedroom. But as far as reading is concerned, I, I do think that there's room there. I, I kind of feel like, though, when I've been at my best optimal sleep regiment, it has been reading elsewhere in the house and. Then putting the book down, then going to the room and going as straight to bed as I can possibly do. But it's good to know that there's some wiggle room there. And I definitely hear you on the if you're laying there for a while and you can't fall asleep, get up and do something else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just like with everything, when it comes to our health and well being, a little bit it is trial and error for yourself because some things might work well for you that don't work for someone else, and vice versa. Again, if it's a problem if you can't fall asleep. These are some places that you can take a look, things that you can cut out.
1: Yes, definitely. Any other ideas there? I mean, there's definitely a couple other things. There's one. So you've got your training, your brain that your bed is for sleep. What about having like a bedtime routine? I know our brains are very, and you probably have a better term for this, but they kind of crave pathways and routines in order to know what they're supposed to be doing, I guess is the best way I can put yes.
0: it. Yes, absolutely. Our brains are really lazy and that's a good thing, right? They love routines. They love consistency because it makes life easier for your brain. It's one less thing your brain has to think about if you have consistent routines and we all have routines. We have them for everything we do throughout the day. You have a route that you take to work that's easier for your brain, right? And so you get to work almost without thinking about it and you show up and you're not even sure how you got there, right? And so we can train our brains to get ready for sleep in the same way by having a sleep routine or a bedtime routine it doesn't have to be long or intricate. Really, the goal here is to have a consistent set of actions or behaviors that you do for the, you know, 20 to 30 minutes before bed to start getting your brain ready to sleep, to send those signals to your brain that, okay, I'm winding down. Now we're getting into sleep mode, just like we did when we were kids, right? Most kids have a bedtime. Routine. They get, you know, their jammies on, they have their bath, they have a little snack, they read a book, and that helps kids wind down. And our brains work the same way as adults, right? Whatever that routine is for you, whether it's like you said, reading a book for 20 minutes downstairs before you go to bed or maybe it's listening to some music, some relaxing music for a while before bed. The more consistently we do this, the more your brain's going to learn, OK, now I'm reading. That means it's time to wind down. That means I'm going to go to sleep soon and it can start to get into that sleep cycle on its own. So you're ready to fall asleep when your head hits the pillow.
1: Perfect. And that's going to be subjective, like whatever the routines are. I mean, you'll know based on knowing yourself And trial and error over time and doing your own work on you and figuring out what is part of your evening routine. And again, sometimes that evening routine is going to shift based on seasonality as well.
0: Sure. Yeah, good point. Or what's going on in your life or other scheduling or where you are, if you're on vacation, you know, all these things can play a role, too. And really, the goal is just to provide as much consistency for your brain as you can, because that's going to make life easier.
1: So the third thing that you talk about in terms of sleep is the mental shelf idea, and I wish that I had remembered this last night because I would have gotten up, I would have taken some time to do this, and I probably would have gotten to sleep a lot faster. So would you mind explaining what that mental shelf is?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I, I really like the mental shelf technique. It can be used for lots of areas of our life where things are on our brain and we can't seem to get them out of our mind. But I think it works great for sleep because you're right. A common problem that we have is, you know, we feel tired. We go into bed. You lay down and all of a sudden our brains turn on, right? And you're thinking about what you have to do tomorrow. And you're thinking about that song you heard on the radio or that conversation you had 10 years ago. And our brains start to go into overdrive and they won't turn off. Some of those thoughts are just passing thoughts, but sometimes they can also be, you know, stressful or not super helpful for us. We start to worry about things that are coming up. Then we start to worry that we're not sleeping and all this just makes sleep even harder. So what the mental shelf technique does is it gives your brain a strategy for taking those thoughts and putting them on what I call a mental shelf so they're not bothering you as much anymore and here's kind of the the quick rundown of how it works is in your brain imagine a shelf. I like to use the shelf that's in my living room, the bookshelf that I have there, because I can bring a really vivid picture into my mind. When we're doing any of these type of mental imagery exercises, we want it to be as vivid as almost like we're there as we can. So think about what color the shelf is, what's on the shelf, where is the shelf in the room? What does it feel like if you touch the shelf? Is it wood or metal or plastic? Can you smell anything else in the room? Maybe the shelf is close to your kitchen and you can smell your coffee. You want to bring this really vivid, intricate picture of the shelf into your mind. And then every time a thought comes to you when you're laying there, imagine the thought as something that you can pick up and put it on the shelf. I imagine my thoughts as little cartoon thought bubbles because that works well for me, but you can imagine them any way you want. But you want them to be a thought that you can physically pick up with your mind and put it on the shelf. And then every time that thought comes back, you pick it up and put it on the shelf again. If those thoughts are things that you actually need to deal with, maybe it's a reminder for the next day, you can pick them off that shelf again In the morning. But the goal here is to train your brain again that, okay, now is not when I think about these thoughts. I'm going to put them on the shelf. I can deal with them later or I can let them go. It will take some practice. It's normal for those thoughts to keep coming back, especially when you start doing this. But the more that you do it, the easier it will get. The faster you'll be able to put those thoughts on the shelf and they'll be able to slip from your mind and no longer bother you. And the less of those thoughts that you'll have so you can fall asleep more quickly.
1: Now, listeners that are paying attention will notice that there are similarities to what you were just talking about in terms of the mental shelf and meditation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when a thought comes and you're concentrating on your breathing, a thought comes and it's not that a thought happening is a bad thing. It's that you acknowledge the thought. But then, in essence, you put it on the shelf, and if it keeps coming yes. back, you keep putting it on the shelf. And so if you have a meditation practice, you'll find, and at times when I've had a meditation practice in place better than I do right now, admittedly, I am able to overall let things come and then put them in their place. I was going to say metaphorically, but maybe that's not incorrect. It's it's metaphorical, it's it's psychological, it's emotional, mm-hmm. It's but it's it's having order, in other words.
0: Yeah. And having some control over those thoughts, right? Not trying to, you know, force them away or trying to judge them, just being able to pick them up and put them on the shelf because they're not useful right now. The visual aspect of this strategy works really well for me because I'm a really visual learner. There is a lot of really great research that has been done on athletes, for example, on how visualization can improve performance. And so that's something that just fits really well for me. But you're absolutely right. If you have another meditation practice that allows you to you know, imagine your thoughts on a river, for example, and they flow away from you or whatever it is, fabulous. That's a great strategy.
1: So we were just talking about sleep here. I'd kind of like to really quickly talk about, okay, there are ways that you can recharge throughout your day. Even if you did get optimal sleep, we do get tired, we do need breaks. And I want to talk about some of those best mental breaks for our brain. And then I want to touch into the final topic of procrastination. Hence, I'm procrastinating on purpose (laughs) on procrastination. Uh,
0: I love it. I love it. Yeah. So so mental breaks for our brain throughout the day. So really a good time to take a break is whenever you start to notice that you're losing focus on what you're doing. If you're starting to get fidgety or a little bit cranky or a little bit uncomfortable, again, those are all signs that our brain might need a little bit of a break. This will be really individual as well, but great strategies for your brain in terms of taking breaks or anything that gets you up and moves you away. From where you're frustrated so if i am sitting at my desk getting frustrated with whatever project i'm working on i need that little bit of a mental break i'm starting to you know zone out not pay as much attention get really fatigued getting up and moving to another room to do something for a few minutes just like with sleep is a great strategy because again we don't want our brains to sit here at my desk and stew and stress about how frustrated and tired I'm getting right. So if I get up and go into another room, maybe grab a cup of coffee, go walk around my office for a few minutes, get up, move your body away is a really great strategy.
1: Very cool. Yeah. And I've heard that it's often doing something different than what you've been doing. Like if you've been sitting at a desk, stand up. If you've been staring at a screen, don't stare at one. If you've been inside, go outside. If you haven't been drinking or eating anything healthy do that. And it's often punctuating and closing what you were doing off or down or shutting it down, whatever the best way is that you need to internalize that and then pivot away. And it signifies a break. It signifies a change of pace. And then you come back and you're fresh again, kind of like doing a, a almost a Pomodoro technique.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it can be helpful, I think, to think of your brain as like a muscle in this situation. So if I'm sitting here working at my desk on my computer, my computer-related attention brain muscles are fatiguing, right? And so if I get up and go do something else, like I go outside for a few minutes, it's like I was exercising my arm when I move on to legs. Is it a good analogy? I'm giving my brain that space it needs to do those tasks. If you've ever been you know, trying to think of The name of a person, for example, and you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking, you just can't think about it. But then in the shower, five hours later, the name of that person comes to you. That's normal. That's because our brains fatigue in this way, right? When we're spending too much time focusing on one specific task or one specific strategy. And so, yes, taking a break, doing something totally different is a really great strategy.
1: Yes, And as you were saying that, it's like, oh, yeah, sets of reps and you then stop and you move to a different machine or a different workout and you cycle around and come back around again. So if that helps anybody kind of internalize that, that makes sense. Speaking of working out, one of the other things people procrastinate on often. Let's talk about procrastination now.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So
1: obviously it's a huge deal, is one of the biggest productivity sucks that is out there when it comes to just blockers. It, It stops us from doing things and it can be very vague. It can feel very vague and amorphous and just a cloud descends on you and you don't know why you're not doing the things you should be doing macro and micro level. I'm curious, what are some of the ways that we can spot The signs of procrastination first, and then let's pivot into okay, what can we do about it?
0: Yeah, so you know, one great sign is if something has been on your to do list for a month and you keep putting it off till tomorrow, right? That could be your brain procrastinating if you keep finding other things that you need to get done but that aren't actually related to your goals, like busy work, right? So instead of you know, recording an episode for my podcast, I'm reorganizing my bookshelf or decluttering my drawer, right? All of these can be a way to procrastinate or avoid that task that our brain has decided for a number of reasons it really doesn't want to do. And so if you feel like you're busy all day, but you're not getting anything done, if you keep having to put stuff off till tomorrow, if you start to think about doing a task and your body feels not good, if I look at my to-do list and I see, you know, go for this interview and I'm like, that feels awful, I start to sweat a little bit or my heart starts racing or my stomach's flip-flopping, that could be another sign that your brain is going into procrastination mode. So we might feel it in our mind or in our body, that procrastination.
1: Okay. And I know one of the things that I'll do to make myself feel like I'm not procrastinating is to do air quotes work on anything. Right. And I know that's another one of the signs.
0: Yeah. Productive procrastination. Right. So you're doing something. You're still working. You're busy. You're doing all this stuff, but you're not doing that thing that you really need to get done to move you towards. Your goal. And in our days, when our days are so full, our to-do lists are gigantic. There's always stuff that we could do instead of that thing. But then that thing is still there. It doesn't really go away. And it takes up a lot of brain resources because your brain is putting effort into procrastinating on that thing. It's still at the back of your mind. You know, it's still on your to-do list. You know, it's still waiting for you and your brain is actively trying to avoid it, which burns energy and time.
1: Yeah. And again, we were just talking about, you know, regaining our energy and managing our time better. But <laughs> if you're procrastinating, you might not even be able to be able to be aware of what your energy level is or, you know, time may feel all wonky. Yeah. Great point. So I know that, you know, and, and the busyness, uh, or the busy work is easy to do. It's like, okay, well, I guess, uh, since I don't want to do the big thing that like you referred to, there's a thing on my list. It's been on there for a month. I keep moving it either back a week or back days to weeks to months, I'll do something busy like jump in and return emails instead, because that's that's productive. But really, that's just spinning the wheels and actually really detracts from doing any of the meaningful work that needs to get done.
0: Absolutely. I know we talked already that our brains are really designed to be lazy and conserve energy, and that's a good thing until it gets in our way. And the other important thing I think to keep in mind here is that our brains are also designed to keep us comfortable and to keep us safe. And so usually when we're starting to experience some of this mental resistance, which is really what procrastination is at its core, is there's something going on in our brains where our brain is like, "Ugh, no, I don't want to do that thing right? There is some reaction that our brains have had that said, this thing is scary. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. I'm not sure I can do it. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to put all this time and energy into this. So let's just avoid it and keep procrastinating. And so I know sometimes it feels like we don't really know why we are procrastinating, but if we spend some time, whether that's journaling or doing any other exercises to really get to the root of what is causing that procrastination from your brain, why is your brain trying to prevent you from doing this thing, what is the fear that your brain is scared of might happen, can really help overcome that resistance. Again, when we bring those fears into the open, we bring our thoughts into the open, it really frees up some of that space for our brain to look at them more critically.
1: I was just going to say that kind of loops back around to the journaling and or external brain and and self-awareness, all topics that we've talked about on the show in the past. It really does wonders to Having clarity, in other words, if, if you've got more clarity than you do normally, then suddenly it's like, oh, I can identify why I'm procrastinating on something because I know that like, I don't want to, I, I'm trying to think of an example right off the top of my head and I'm not going to be able to do it, but it's an example of that. It's like, hey, it's not that I'm being lazy, which is often what procrastination is paired with. It's that yes. there is a reason you have a reason. You may not be aware of what reason you have for being that way about that thing and procrastinating on it.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes, that is such a great point to make. Is you're absolutely right. Is that we we procrastinate? What we internalize, what we take in, is that oh, I'm procrastinating because I'm lazy, right? Which doesn't motivate our brain to do anything, right? When I feel like I'm lazy or I'm not good enough, my brain isn't gonna wanna take action, right? And that's not true. That's not why we're procrastinating. Again, there is some fear or some worry or some uncertainty that's at the heart of that procrastination that is, yeah, largely happening without us being aware. Our brains are amazing at doing this. They tell all these stories to us behind the scenes that trigger that limbic system, that fear response, in our brain to say, Ooh, I don't want to do this thing. And it keeps that cycle of I'm scared. I'm uncertain. I'm not comfortable. So I'm going to avoid and we keep spiraling into procrastination and it gets harder and harder to take action.
1: And it really loops back in and folds in on all the other things that we've talked about in this conversation, whether that's lack of memory and concentration because I'm procrastinating, because there's something that's draining my energy because I keep putting it off and I have to keep putting it back on the memory shelf so I can get some sleep. And lack of sleep is folding into burnout and overwhelm because of lack of sleep, as well as procrastination and so on and so on. It all kind of Shame spirals in some way to where you just have to step out of it. Actually, that's a great place to kind of land here is to say, if we're finding that we're experiencing all these different symptomatic examples of just we're drained, we are not operating in an optimal way at all right now, how do we short circuit all of that spiral Is there one place you'd kind of point to and say, hey, if you're experiencing all the things we've talked about in this conversation, I know there's not a silver bullet, but is there a couple of different like small things to start heading the right direction?
0: Yeah, I would say a great place to start is to give your brain some breathing space, whether that's literally you focus on your breath. If you're starting to feel overwhelmed and stressed and procrastinating and uncertain, take a step back and take a few deep breaths breaths. It sounds simple, but when our brains go into that stress response, it changes how we breathe. We start taking more shallow breaths. We use a lot of muscles through our shoulder and our chest, which increases that stress response for our brain. And we can continue in that cycle of feeling stressed out and overwhelmed. So even something as simple as taking a few deep breaths to kind of get your brain out of that hyperdrive overwhelm mode can allow us to free up some of that space, some of those resources we've been talking about to think more critically and take a look at, okay, why am I feeling this overwhelm? What is driving this for me? Is there something I can do About this, where can I take action? Because we can't think critically like that when our brains are in overload mode. So take a few breaths, get up, move your body, get some fresh air. These are all really great in the moment strategies.
1: I know people that have listened to the show for a long time also know that I have found that just pressing pause getting out of my remote workspace at home and going to, like, say, a coffee shop, treating myself to a beverage of some sort and having a giant legal pad and an analog pen or pencil and just starting to write down things that are on my mind at the time, almost in a form of meditation, almost in a form of brain dump, a la David Allen and getting things done, helped me to have a starting point. And again, going back to what we were originally talking about in terms of journaling and externalizing things getting it out of your head so you can actually start to identify and or work with things
0: that's a fantastic strategy you know one our brains learn better and tend to think in a different way when we write things down with the paper and pencil. Even now in our digital world, where so much of what we do is electronic. Our brains think differently when our hand actually moves to write things down. So pulling out that legal pad, writing down those kind of a train of thought, like you said, brain dump exercise to get it all out. And I love too that you said you move out of that space where you were feeling that stress and that overwhelm, right? If you're working from home, go to a coffee shop. If you're working in an office and you can't leave, even just go into the lunchroom or go into another room, right? To get your brain out of that space. If you've ever had that experience of going into a room and then forgetting why you went in there, our brains do this funky thing when we go through doorways where it resets some pathways and can mess up our memory in that way, which we can use to our advantage in this situation because it allows us to think about things differently when we move away from that space where we're stumped.
1: Yes. Doing a doorway reset. Yes. Let's just coin that term right now. So, I love it. <laughs> if it hasn't been. So, speaking of procrastination, one thing that I don't want people to do is put off going and checking out and subscribing to your podcast. Let's direct people there, tell them where they can find it, and I'll link it up in the show notes.
0: Fantastic. Yes, like you said at the start, it's called the Bold Life Podcast. It's the podcast for high achievers who are looking to find work-life harmony and reach their goals without burning out, where we talk about all things productivity, how to get things done, but also how to overcome a lot of those mental barriers we talked about, like perfectionism, people-pleasing, and procrastination. So available on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, if you want to subscribe.
1: Perfect. Nicole, it's been great talking with you. I've really enjoyed this. I definitely want to have you back in the future. So we'll make sure to loop back around on that. But thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation about neuroscience and psychology and the brain and productivity. And I hope that you got something great out of this. I hope that every time you listen to an episode, something. Even just that one little thing can help you to turn a degree of direction in the path that you're taking and helps you out. If you found this helpful, would you do me the favor and do somebody else the favor of sharing this podcast episode with them? Hit that share button wherever you're listening to this in your podcast player app of choice or on the web. Share this with them. Let them know what it's about. Let them know why you think that they would enjoy it. Do them that favor, help them out, help me out by sharing the show, letting more people know about it. And also, if you didn't know, you can enjoy seven to 10 minute shortcast episodes of Beyond the To-Do List. Just go to beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist. Check that out. It's free and it's easy to check out and listen to a few episodes, get a quick boost of productivity. Again, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I will see you next episode.